Waves in the Finiverse. Something like 60% of all funds in 2022 so far have been hacked by North Korea. Why are there so many DeFi protocols that are getting hacked? How are we letting this to happen that we're missing a really important story, which is everyday people are using crypto at unprecedented rates around the world in Nigeria and Kenya, in Vietnam and the Philippines. Many different types of crime that have an entire supply chain of criminal actors. If we take ransomware, there's the ransomware developer, there's the admin, there's the pen tester, there's the person who launders the money. And oftentimes those individuals are located all around the world. Welcome to Waves in the Finiverse. I'm Walter Jennings, the host of a podcast brought to you by Finiverse, we're talking with the wave makers that are creating ripples, waves, and tsunamis across finance, crypto, fintech, Web3, and beyond. Listen weekly to hear the change makers talk firsthand about their experiences in this dynamic industry. If you're a crime junkie, you're going to love our next guest. She takes investigations into a crypto dimension. Our guest specializes in researching and discovering trends in crypto economics and crime. As director of research for Chainalysis, she works with banks, governments, and businesses across the globe to solve some of the world's most high-profile cyber criminal cases. So, the Sherlock of the crypto world, Kim Grauer, welcome to the Finiverse. Kim, it's an unusual role being a specialist in crime. So what has been the biggest cyber crime in history so far? Probably I'd say one of the big scams, the one of the big billion dollar scams. I want to say Plus Token, which was a 2019 um, Ponzi scheme, mostly impacting people in China. Although there have been a few other Ponzi schemes to give Plus Token a run for their money. I'm thinking of OneCoin. Um, is another good example. But Plus Token kind of took the industry by storm in 2019. And it was so big that we even branded 2019 to be the year of the scam. Because one scam at that point, it's unheard of one scam receiving billions and billions of dollars from millions of users. And um, the way that they structured this Ponzi scheme, the way that they staged photo ops with the royal family in London was all you know, a combination of of really devastating to see how many people were hurt, but also the type of like intrigue that you could only see in crypto crime. Yeah, no, that's really fascinating. The um, You're saying that, you know, with the scale, growth and scale of blockchain and the growth of scale of the criminal element, and we're now seeing uh, some larger and larger crimes that are occurring. Talk me through some of the illicit activities you're monitoring right now. It's a really good question, if only because a lot of times people say crypto crime as though there's one type of crypto crime. But oh my gosh, is that all encompassing? There is, I think, let's see if I can name them all. We've What we're tracking now and what we focus on now is scamming, darknet marketplaces, fraud shops, hacking, child abuse materials, terrorist financing, sanctioned activities, ransomware, malware attacks. And in addition to 
other more behavioral types of crimes, such as wash trading, market manipulation, and money laundering. And we've got data to support every single one of those kind of types of crime that I've that I've just discussed. Does the transparency in blockchain make it easier or harder to identify illicit activity? I guess this is one of the things that is really poorly understood about the industry, although I think that we've come leaps and bounds in terms of our collective understanding of the transparency of blockchains. But this is a huge win for law enforcement and the ability to crack down on crime that you have a permanent forever ledger of transactions that are associated with criminal activity and that you can trace these transactions in real time and build out these networks of investigations. I'll give you an example of um, why this is really important. If there's a hack that's happening, and we know hacking is one of the biggest problems right now in the crypto space, there's a hack. Time is of the essence because many times these bad actors are rogue nation state actors from North Korea, for example, who steal your money. And the second they kind of have it in their possession in some other fiat currency, it's gone. So if you can live trace these transactions in real time using a blockchain ledger, you have a really good shot of get, of freezing funds and getting them back. So overall, I would say that uh, the transparency of blockchains really emphasizes and really allows people to see the scale of criminal activity in a way that they were never able to see before. And I think one of the reasons why people are so focused on crime and crypto is a little bit of a double-edged sword that comes with the transparency of crypto. We shine a magnifying glass on all the crimes happening. If there's a hack, you wake up on Twitter, everyone's already investigating it. You can't do that in the fiat world. We don't even know how much hacking, how much money laundering is happening in the fiat world. There's so much layers of shell companies and so much siloed activity. You have no idea what's happening unless you're really plugged in to a specific investigation. And so we are we're really able to shine a light on all the crime, but it kind of brings some of this attention. Oh, cryptocurrencies are used only for crime, but we're shining the light on it. So it's kind of a double-edged sword um, of the transparency of crime data. Well, you um, come out with reports, including the mid-year crypto crime update. Um, at the time of that, uh, Juicy Fields was the top scam of 22 so far. What is it and how does it work? Most scams are just your run-of-the-mill crypto investment scams. Most scams that we trace and identify at Chelsea are investment scams or Ponzi schemes, ones that are claiming to give you 5% returns for life or claiming to give you some sort of, um, of benefit if you invest your money in them. And so if, of the thousands and thousands of scams that we identify, by far the most value is going to these kind of investment scams. And Juicy Fields would be one of these kind of investment scams, Ponzi schemes. Now, the reason why that is happening is because for, for a few reasons, but one is that there are a lot of these scams that operate 
and that operate as a service almost. So people sending to these fun, to these services, they don't think, hey, I'm sending to a scam today. They think, hey, I'm sending to a legitimate business that I believe in. So because of that perceived legitimacy, they're able to grow at a rate that is far faster and more scalable than your phishing scam that like hopes to that maybe a one in every a million people that you they email will send will send money to them. That's not something that's going to scale. Right. But these investment scams can scale and they're also particularly popular in crypto because they are taking advantage of a lot of the hype and FOMO that just comes with crypto, the crypto space more broadly. And so there it's sitting in this place that that is that is really a lot that scams are really have been able to take off over the past few years and have consistently been the biggest source of illicit activity revenue every single year by a lot. Okay. And um Juicy Fields, according to the report, was nothing compared to Finico, which is stolen over one billion US dollars. Can you explain how that occurred? It's hard to become a Ponzi scheme that rakes in billions of dollars. So it is kind of a rarity. And oftentimes we do see a Ponzi scheme having a strong regional footprint. So Plus Token we talked about earlier was mostly impacting people in China. They had a huge marketing scheme under this. There was a lot of celebrities that were involved in promoting this. There was an effort that was put in to make people in your local community aware of Plus Token. The Finico had a similar story, except it was really popular in Russia. And there was a lot of marketing propping it up. A lot of people were talking about the Finico. There was just kind of this network effects that allowed for it to scale. I'm sure every small Ponzi scheme wants to become, to, wants to come to the level of some of these bigger ones. But the problem is that they tap into um, to something that is really attractive to a specific group of people. And that is why many scams often start in one region and then they kind of organically grow over time. And, um, through word of mouth, through friends, through family, and then kind of spread throughout the rest of the world if they're particularly successful. But there's not a single formula or else everyone would do it. It's just kind of got that element of of having the right founders, the right marketing, the right, the right payout structure, the right, the right little bit of everything to allow it to grow to that level. Now, it's fascinating because just as the uh, bonafide deals have uh, generate a sense of FOMO or fear of missing out, it appears the scams do also. Uh, Kim, let's just cover one of the basics. Let's talk about a mixer for a second. Uh, in the crypto world, this is an, a rum and coke. How does this work? How does the mixer work? <laughs> the mixer is a more advanced technology solution to the problem of, I guess, tracing companies such as Chainalysis. What you can do at a problem that people have, is, uh, and you can use mixers for legitimate reasons, is sometimes you are you might not want someone to know where your funds came from. And a mixer purposefully breaks the connection between the source of funds and the destination of funds. So they use complex algorithms to sometimes algorithmically sort funds. Sometimes, um, you know, we've, we've got smart contract based, based mixers. We've got centralized mixers. We've got a, a many different types of mixers, but the concept remains, remains the same that you send money to a mixer from 
let's say a darknet marketplace using chain analysis software, we can see, hey, you guy, you got those funds from a darknet marketplace. So we're not going to convert it to fiat if you're an exchange. But if you pass it through a mixer, you send darknet market funds to a mixer and you receive clean funds from the mixer. And then you can send them, take them to the exchange and then um, and then get them converted to fiat. Oh, very interesting uh, to to see the um, ways of cleaning the cash. Escape crypto winter. Join Web3 and fintech leaders at D3 Bahamas on Paradise Island in the Bahamas from the 24th to the 26th of January. Now, for those who were on vacation in August when the tornado cash story blew up, what happened and what does it mean for online anonymity? What happened with Tornado Cash was that it was sanctioned. And this is a part of a kind of a growing trend coming from OFAC in the United States where they are sanctioning crypto addresses. And this was different because rather than sanctioning an address for an individual, they sanctioned a protocol that was a little bit controversial and caused a lot of questions, but ultimately was a reflection of the fact that OFAC is signaling that they are leaning into this new technology. In this case, Tornado Cash was was sanctioned because it was basically the number one destination for hacked funds that had been hacked by North Korea. Something like 60% of all funds in 2022 so far have been hacked by North Korea. That's billions of dollars going to a country who billions of dollars being received in 2022 alone by North Korea, when I think something like the trade imports from other countries amounted to $80 million, according to some other reporting. So that's a huge, huge amount of money going into going into North Korea. And so the sanctioning was a response to that, but certainly no one would dispute that something need to ha- needed to happen because a, a hack would happen and within hours funds would start coming into tornado cash and then leaving and um and leaving and then getting into the hands of these North Korean hackers who then further fund more attacks and then um you know there's speculation that that those funds are also used for the nuclear programs and and whatnot. Now you put together a great chart that showed where tornado cash's crypto came from and over fifty percent was from DeFi. Um, and yes, so far in 2022, you'd noted um, North Korean affiliated groups have stolen approximately one billion of cryptocurrency from DeFi protocols. Explain to me how criminal groups are using DeFi protocols so effectively. So there's some legitimate usage for Tornado Cash. So not, sending from DeFi to Tornado Cash is not by definition a signal that there's a crime happening. In some instances, we are seeing that DeFi is an intermediary stopping point for crime. There won't necessarily be just one level of a laundering strategy, but as groups get more complex, there might be a crime sent to DeFi, sent to exchange, sent to mixers. And, you know, there's going to be a lot of hops in there to uh, to throw law enforcement off the, off the scent. But DeFi is a really interesting example of... Uh, question or it's interesting to think about DeFi in the context of crime because on the one hand you want to think about our criminals using mixers to launder money but by far the more important question right now 
and the most impactful industry question isn't criminals using DeFi to launder money. It's why are there so many DeFi protocols that are getting hacked? How are we letting this to happen? This is a huge vulnerability in the industry. And so it's not really a problem with DeFi as a money laundering strategy, but there are clearly vulnerabilities in the industry that we need to sort out. Okay, well, we're um, experiencing a downturn. Some are calling it crypto winter. Um, how are they affecting the criminals uh, that are targeting the crypto industry? The only major type of crime that is really affected by price and price action is scamming. Things like ransomware. A ransomware criminal isn't going to wake up one morning and not carry out a ransomware attack because the price is down 20%. And the same goes for darknet markets to be um, darknet market people are using darknet marketplaces places for a specific reason, oftentimes to purchase drugs or credit cards or stolen items. And that isn't really a um, something that involves the price at all. And so, but with scamming, like we said at the top of the call, no one wakes up and says, I'm going to send to a scam. Rather, they're like, I'm going to send to, I'm going to invest my money in a way that I feel fit. So if there's a general market turndown and people are saying, hey, I'm not sure I'm going to invest anymore, then they're going to be investing less in scams as well. And so what we saw was that scamming is down from what we would have probably expected even just a few months ago. But also other types of crime are down too, although not for price reasons. For other reasons, I would say due to law enforcement wins have been a major um, deterrent of criminal activity. On um, If we take darknet marketplaces, there have been major darknet market closures all around the world, so much so that darknet market administrators are open for a few months and self-close because they're afraid that if they get too big, they're definitely going to be investigated by law enforcement. So we're seeing um, we're seeing some types of criminals kind of adapt and change and um, and law enforcement wins have acted acted as kind of a supply side deterrent, whereas the price on scam has been a demand side deterrent. Waves in the Finiverse, the podcast. Speaking to the people making waves in finance, fintech, crypto, Web3 and beyond. Uh, now, Chainalysis recently launched a community of investigations. So I guess that's essentially a community of online detectives. How does it work and how do I become a part of it? It's uh, really cool. We have this data set, but there's many different types of crime that have an entire supply chain of, of criminal actors. If we take ransomware, there's the ransomware developer, there's the admin, there's the, there's the pen tester, there's the person who launders the money. And oftentimes those individuals are located all around the world in many different jurisdictions, but they're all using connected by the same financial networks in terms of crypto payments. So how do we get people involved and sharing their insights around, around the world? And so we've created this kind of community, and we aim to foster a community of participants that are focused 
um, not necessarily on case investigations, but on risk management across the cryptocurrency industry by encouraging our users to share intelligence and to collaborate with other expert users using our software product reactor. And the hope is just to continue to build more trust and transparency in, block, in the blockchain community using these communities. And, and how will this community intelligence and collaboration impact investigations? Well, first of all, it will prevent there from being, it will, it will be an avenue to restricting silos. If you had been investigating a wallet and you didn't quite know what you saw, but you knew it was connected to some other suspicious activity or came up in a scam, and you know that could just wither away and not be useful for you because maybe your investigation got closed. But it could be or maybe you're um, investigating a customer or you're in compliance and that piece of intelligence just doesn't go anywhere. But it might be a crucial piece of information for someone who's trying to manage risk on another exchange or another in another situation to have access to that information. Think about how much information is lost out there by a lack of information sharing. This is definitely an attempt to to fix that but do it in a responsible way, given that a lot of information can be very sensitive. Now, Kim, when we uh, first met, you mentioned you're not from a crime agency or a police background. Um, uh, tell me, how does crime fit into your overall portfolio and uh, how much of this is your, uh, your, your, how much of this is your typical day? I'm definitely not, uh, by background, a crime person. I'm more of a, a data econ person who, um, and we focus a lot on crime because it's an extremely important industry question right now. How much of the how much of the blockchain is associated with criminal activity? And just getting those numbers out. What I do day to day is extremely kind of data intensive, and not so much, you know, and in what an investigator would do up would show up and do in terms of an investigation and um but my definitely we we focus on so many more issues than than crime although crime is definitely i think the the domain where we seem to have the most impact we look at geographic trends nft trends um estimating um we, sometimes we get into the predictions world, although I I know you never make a prediction in crypto, never make a prediction <laughs> in crypto, let me tell you. So, and my day-to-day -day is really um, hoping to spend as much time doing original research as possible, but also answering data questions that people might have and just, just really trying to get our data into the right people's hands um, in a variety of different topics. And uh, what are some of the reports that we can uh, look forward to in the coming months? So soon we're going to be putting out our geographic report, which I, I was talked about how our crime report is the most impactful report. But and this could just be because I'm kind of deep in the geographic research right now. But I actually think the most important, really the most underreported story comes from our geographic report, which attempts to quantify the amount of crypto activity happening in every country around the world. We spend so much time thinking about North Korean hacks and Elon Musk tweets and Twitter and Dogecoin that we're missing a really important story, which is... Um, People, everyday people are using crypto at unprecedented rates around the world in Nigeria and Kenya, in um, in Vietnam and the Philippines. Did you know that there's an incredibly large NFT hub in India and an even larger gaming hub in the Philippines? And um, 
So we're missing the story as it's unfolding right now because we're kind of fixating on these these big certain headline grabbing stories. We will be ranking countries' adoption by population and purchasing power weighted variables to see who, to estimate who has the most grassroots adoption. So not who is doing the $30 million transfers, but which countries have people actually doing commerce with cryptocurrency or carrying out remittances using cryptocurrency? So we've got that coming up. We're also looking at the impact of sanctions on cryptocurrency activity. We've got some really interesting stuff on stable coins and the bear market, as well as um, an analysis of NFT collections by risk profile. So there's a lot of good stuff on the horizon. So it really sounds like your your purpose at Chainalysis is to provide wide-ranging research that helps people better understand usage and challenges. Uh, uh, tell me a bit about Chainalysis. Chainalysis is the blockchain data provider or platform. What we've done since 2013-2014 has been identifying the wallets of services. And what that allows us to do is see how much money is received by darknet marketplaces and how much money of those how much of that darknet marketplace money went to, you know, Coinbase or something like that. And so we can we identify services and the and the wallets that they control. And we've done that. We've got tens of thousands of services so we can see the the total crypto activity of all of these different services. From there, we repackage that data and sell it to different customers based on their exact needs. If you're in law enforcement, you probably want to use our data to invest for an investigation that you're running. How do you follow the money in a cryptocurrency address that you have to a service that you can then subpoena and get the personally identifiable information of that individual? And then we'll also do other things like... Um, high-level metrics in our mar- in some of our other products. And then I sit on top of kind of all of those use cases and try and just do research. Have you listened to the Crypto Queen podcast and were you following that crime in real time? I have listened and I, I was not following it in real time, but I brushed up on it for a, uh, a part of a crypto crime report that I did at some point. In your years of looking at crimes, are there any memorable ones that stand out for any reason? Oh my gosh, there's so many. It's, Come on, it's, you've got to have a favorite. Everyone's got a favorite. A favorite? Um, I think the Quadriga, someone may might have faked their death. Quandary was a really interesting thing to to learn about. Um, oh, there was another one. I probably shouldn't say the name, but we they were very blatantly a scam, and we put it in our report. And then they kind of reacted negatively that hey, that we're not a scam. But then we kind of so that made us go down the rabbit hole deeper. And then we realized that they were connected to like ten other scams. And that these these people, I, then I learned about these careers where people are marketing managers for specifically for scams. Well, you mentioned Quadrega. So uh, help us understand that crime. So Quadrega was a hack. What happened was there was there was a hack and then the CEO wound up dead. But there was speculation that um, that he had faked his death to get away with the hacked funds. It's still a it's still an open, you know. No one has a. I actually bet some people do have clear answers on this. But I think in like the the court of public opinion, it's still like a matter to be that's we're still kind of figuring out what happened. 
But that was certainly an exciting thing to learn about. And then I, I was on a podcast about it once and they started educating me about the whole faking your death industry. Apparently there's a whole industry there. So, <laughs> Well, uh, Kim, if the founder of Quadrega comes back from the dead, we'll definitely get you on for an update. Tracks in the Finiverse. IP crime was kind of the, the a major issue uh, over the last decades when we think about torrent sharing and, and downloading movies and, and music. Netflix, Spotify, there's been a great change. How will blockchain offer the next iteration of protection for intellectual property? I think overall... The blockchain is really good at kind of establishing what I would call providence over um, over something. So, what if you are a if you have an NFT and you own it and you transfer it a million times? It's very easy to see the 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 lifespan of that piece of that NFT because every transaction is is registered through the blockchain. It's you can see the origin of everything that's happening. There's really interesting movements in the music space where if you sell a piece of music that it automatically bakes into it a way to you know, get the artist a royalty or something like that. I think there's a lot of issues that are, we still need to overcome with that. You know, for, for example, we see fraud happening with NFTs. So someone takes a picture of a crypto kitty and uploads it on a different platform. And if you don't quite understand the the kind of the domain of how crypto kitties specifically work, maybe you think you have a crypto kitty. So there's still plenty of opportunities for fraud and for um, IP to get to get misused and misappropriated. But in theory, this technology should be able to effectively establish ownership claims and connect transactions to the first transaction all the way to the last transaction. Okay, Kim, if you could um, uh, take one song with you into the Finiverse, what would it be and why? Okay, I, I think that I would take... This is this is just the, uh, the answer. My favorite band of all time is this band called Bell and Sebastian. And there's this one song, If She Wants Me, that I think I've listened to like a million, a millions of times in my life. And um, from when I was young up until this morning. And so it's definitely kind of the anthem of my life, I would say. It's not just me. I tell you, it's both of us. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much. Joining us, Kim Grauer with Chainalysis, Director of Research and uh, hot on the tail of the latest cyber crimes. And uh, thank you so much for your time today. This has been Waves in the Finiverse. Why not hit the subscribe or follow button so you never miss an episode? If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, then please leave us a review and a five-star rating. Thanks for listening.